0: hello i'm daniel
1: and i'm liz
0: and welcome to a dose of dizzy
1: your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research hello and welcome back to another episode of a dose of dizzy this is episode seven of season two we are like over the halfway point kind of crazy
0: (laughs) (laughs) honestly yeah no we're uh we have an exciting topic for everyone to discuss uh, this month, and it's uh, we I, we've mentioned it quite a few times over, a lot. Um, you know, over I guess our last season and a half, um, and it is probably one of the more common vestibular disorders that you will come across um, during your career, and it is. Meniere's disease disease. Um, so yeah it's uh, we have a great episode for you all this um, coming up on Meniere's disease and Liz is going to kick us off with a little bit of basic more foundational knowledge about what this disorder actually is
1: so i feel like when people hear meneers or google meneers it's probably uh the most common thing they think about when they think about dizziness just because it's so commonly diagnosed you've probably had a patient with it a family member who says they have it um, and now we're getting a little bit better understanding about how to diagnose it so what is it? it is technically a progressive vestibular and audiologic disorder so affecting both the hearing and the balance organs of the inner ear. And the whole idea behind why it occurs is there's an overaccumulation of endolymph, that's that fluid, in the cochlear ducts and the vestibular organs. And although we're not going to go into all the reasons or theories behind this overaccumulation of fluid, there are quite a few. So if it interests you, you can definitely look into it. But the whole idea is there's too much fluid in the inner ear.
0: Yes. Um, now, what does that actually mean when the patient comes and presents to you in the clinic? Well, there are wide, also a wide variety, I would say also pretty particular clinical characteristics that patients mm-hmm. will present with. Um, one being, this is episodic. You are going to have spontaneous episodes of vertigo. How long... This can range, but typically we hear, you know, the, I've had an attack and vertigo lasting for hours, or, mm-hmm. um, and it will, it will, u- the episodes will usually vary somewhere along that hour timeline. Um, patients will often report unilateral fluctuating hearing loss, particularly, and once we get into some of the more audiometric data, sensory neural hearing loss, and it mm-hmm. is often described as progressive. Um, They'll often report other otologic symptoms such as tinnitus, oral fullness, and um, can also present with a wide variety of, of drop attacks.
1: Yeah. And drop attacks are kind of interesting because like many other things with Meniere's disease, these symptoms come out of no, out of nowhere uh, to the patient. So, you know, the vertigo can come unannounced. The hearing loss can come with or without the vertigo. It can come beforehand, during, you know, or separate of. And same thing with that tennis oral fullness. And then drop attacks where someone can just literally fall without warning. So, Typically, a patient does not know the word "drop attacks." That's something we all use, kind of, but um, it basically. I usually ask patients, "Have you ever fallen without warning?" Because they will describe that they just drop to the ground, like somebody pushed them over, and it's it's quite intense. Very different from a fall due to imbalance.
0: Right. So, Liz, tell us a little bit about what you know. What are what is some of the prevalence? Who's getting Meniere's disease?
1: Yeah. And this is you know interesting because as we've studied a little bit more, I think we're getting better idea of who this may affect. So typically the prevalence of this disorder um, affects about anywhere from 34 to 190. So that's a pretty wide range per every 100,000 people. And typically it's uh, anywhere from ages 20 to 60 years. It's fairly consistent, you know, female versus male It can be either one, but there might be a little bit predominance towards the female population uh, being affected by this more. And then, you know, one thing that's interesting is most of the times Meniere's disease is one-sided. However, anywhere from 15 to 40% of patients who are affected – um, have it in both ears. So it can start as a unilateral disease and then progress to bilateral. So it's something to think about with your patient.
0: Right. And that's always been very interesting to me. And I don't know if I, I'm i not too sure. I haven't come across any of this, but given that it's, you know, 15 to 40% of these patients have it in both ears, is that some indication that this could also have a genetic component to it?
1: I think there definitely could be a genetic component. I know and I didn't get out all my notes before this episode, but I definitely remember studying a number of different theories for why this overaccumulation of endolymph happens, because it is interesting if it's affecting both ears, it's more than just like a mechanical or anatomical or physiologic issue. That's only affecting one side. So it is very interesting to think about this subset of patients that are affected in both ears.
0: Right. Um, And so, you know, Along with all of this that Liz and I have just described, um, there are also a number of comorbid disorders that can happen at the same time or at least been documented in the literature. Um, One being arthritis, psoriasis, any uh, gastric reflux issues, uh, IBS and migraine, which keep that in the back (laughs) of your mind because we'll talk a little bit about um, the overlap with uh, migraine.
1: Absolutely. So when we talk about Meniere's disease, so you see a patient who's presenting with those symptoms like Daniel talked about, um, how do you actually diagnose them with Meniere's disease? And this, you know, tends to be a group effort. It's not just the vestibular audiologist. It's not just a physical therapist who makes this diagnosis, but there are some diagnostic criteria uh, guidelines that can help you determine whether your patient may be, um, you know, consistent with this type of disease
0: right and so one thing to keep in mind or basically just think about is a lot of this diagnostic criteria is going to be case history dependent Mm -hmm. um there are primarily two different classes of meniere's disease uh, meniere's disease diagnosis one being definite the other being probable uh meniere's disease so for definite um it requires two or more spontaneous episodes of vertigo, each lasting 20 minutes to 12 hours. Whoa, that is a (laughs) wide range. Yes. Um, But um, uh, second, it also requires a... And and this is sort of... We'll talk about biomarkers in a bit, but audiometric test findings are going to be included in that definite diagnosis. So audiometrically, you're going to document a low to to mid-frequency um sensory neural hearing loss in one ear Um, that typically refers to the affected ear um, and it usually starts to occur after the patient has subsequent episodes Um, a lot of this the third point you're going to have fluctuating oral symptoms hearing tinnitus fullness in that affected ear and lastly it's not going to be accounted for by another vestibular diagnosis
1: And the probable Meniere's disease looks quite similar to the definite. The only thing missing from that is that there has been no audiometrically documented low to medium frequency hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss, which can be kind of hard to catch your patient when they're in the middle of an active episode. Probably the last thing that they want to do is get in a car and come see you. So it can be very difficult sometimes to catch this fluctuation of hearing. Um, But if everything else sounds like it, like they've had those two or more episodes of the spinning dizziness, and they've had fluctuating symptoms of that affected ear, and you haven't found anything else in your testing that makes you concerned, Definitely something to consider uh, for that patient. And there's ways, you know, if you're having a patient and you're curious about what they may be experiencing, there's ways you can ask about, like, not every patient even knows the word fluctuating, but, like, does your hearing change? Do you ever have a good hearing day and a bad hearing day? You know, when you have ringing in the ears, does that come and go? So there's ways you can ask it in more patient-friendly terms.
0: Now, there are a few other disorders that may play um, that may try to mimic Meniere's mm-hmm. disease. Uh, Liz, talk with walk us through a little bit about what those could be, or what other disorders could be playing a role in, you know, maybe throwing you off, or may you know, act Meniere's ish.
1: Mm-hmm. So Meniere's disease, there's been a long time history of people probably over diagnosing this condition just because it's so case history dependent, and there's not one test that can say, "Yep, it's Meniere's," um, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. But because it's been <laughs> very overdiagnosed. um there's a lot of other diagnoses that should be on the table if you're seeing a patient with similar symptoms so the first one that i think is very overlapping is migraines and as you had mentioned before it's a comorbid disorder so a lot of times Meniere's disease can happen in coordination with migraines. It can also happen separately of migraines. So it's something to think about. I know we did an episode on migraine-associated vertigo, and there is a very specific criteria for that as well. And really the main difference is, um, you know, and when you're thinking Meniere's disease, there's typically a single hearing loss, a one-sided hearing loss. And that's that sensory neural low frequency. And when you're thinking migraines, one, they should have like a diagnosis of migraines, and or like a family history and strong history of headaches personally, but also some of those sensitivities like phonophobia, photophobia, you know, that light and sound sensitivity. And usually, there's some time association between dizziness and their migraine. Right. So there's some de- defining characteristics of each, and I am like always printing out the criteria when i'm thinking about a patient and like running through it myself because they get super confusing and the test results could look identical from what we do and so you have to be really really careful about how you diagnose it
0: yeah it's i mean just kind of going through it talking about you know talking about how some of these these other disorders may present you can see how the the diagnosis can get a little messy (laughs) um some other um disorders to think about. Um, schwannomas, and this also uh, makes sense because if you know, most of the time these patients are also going to have episodes of vertigo, and if the um, you know if the the schwannoma is growing or progressing in any way, it may also mimic and affect uh, you know hearing portions of that nerve and may present in a very similar fashion when when these patients are coming to your clinic.
1: Yeah, and typically you know, as we know, schwannomas tend to affect you know cervical vamps a lot of times is one of the first things we'll see and it's typically a high frequency hearing loss so there's still some defining characteristics but definitely something to think about and then the last one is strokes so vascular related changes um, in the brain or related to the inner ear can also mimic this especially because you can have those random spontaneous episodes of vertigo um, and even hearing changes depending on how blood flow is compromised
0: so let's get into some of the treatment options for Meniere's disease, and just to kind of talk about this up front, most of these treatments are going to be directed by either an ENT or neurologist, and there's a you know four to five different treatment options as far as where um, these patients can can go. A lot of these can probably vary, but um, most commonly, as far as medications, uh, you're looking at different diuretics, which helps basically lower or restrict the overproduction of fluid in the inner ear. Um, A lot of the times, patients will be uh, prescribed meclizine, which obviously is a vestibular suppressant, helps control their episodes of vertigo, and Valium, which, of course, helps calm the patient down. Um, A lot of the times, you'll also see... Uh, patients patients being put on a low salt diet. Uh, a lot of research has shown that by cutting back on salt, we can kind of keep that inner that fluid in the inner ear low and prevent um, you know subsequent episodes of vertigo.
1: Yeah, there can also be. I always call these Plan B and C to patients because what's nice about Meniere's disease is there's been a lot of treatments studied. So you can start, you know, lifestyle modifications like diet, and then kind of move up the spectrum if it's not working for you. But um, one of the next steps, maybe a Plan B, would be uh, injection therapy. So gentamicin is one of the most commonly used ototoxic antibiotic because it selectively damages the cells of the balance organ to help hopefully reduce just the vertigo and you know one thing that's always a conversation i hear between patient and ent neurotologist is like how much do you care about your hearing on this side because there's a little bit of a give and a take of like your hearing may go with the dizziness so like it's it's a hard decision for a lot of patients
0: and if you're interested in kind of learning more about gentamicin we're going (laughs) to plug in our previous episode with uh vestibular toxicity with uh dr Riley debacker who uh was so kindly kind of went through all of those uh ototoxic medications for us
1: for sure and then last but not least as far as um options for true treatment of the disease would be surgical options so there's three different things you can consider. One would be the endolymphatic uh, sac or shunt surgery. So that the whole purpose of that type of surgery is to decompress the inner ear fluid by making an incision in that endolymphatic sac, which is where the overaccumulation of fluid is. There's a vestibular nerve section, which uh, sounds exactly as it is, <laughs> cutting the vestibular nerve to obviously relieve and kind of cut those communications uh, between nerve and brain. So that relieves the vertigo while trying to preserve the hearing. And then there's a labyrinthect, which is a total loss of hearing imbalance on that impacted side. So there's that's more plan C, D, E, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, And then lastly, more of like rehabilitative type of treatment is, uh, of course, vestibular rehabilitation therapy that often comes up again and again um, with our patients. Um, This has also been shown to help uh, kind of patients progress through their their active episodes. We'll talk a little bit about... um, some of the the role of vestibular PT in Meniere's disease um, as we get into those Instagram questions later.
1: Yeah, and one thing to, you know, obviously VRT is prescribed a lot for vestibular issues, Most of the time we think of VRT being the most successful in a stable lesion. And I think one thing that makes this a little bit more complicated is it's a dynamic disorder. So it could come back at a random time, which makes it a little bit hard to predict, but there's still every time a patient has an attack, they go through that acute period where they're experiencing a lot of symptoms and then the brain compensates back to that stable uh, situation. So again, we'll get into VRT a little bit more, but that's why and how it could be helpful.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so let's get into some of the clinical utility of our testing. Now we, we've, we you know, we've gone through a lot of, um, you know, what is Meniere's disease? What are the treatment, you know, what's the treatment for Meniere's disease? But how is, you know, is, we also discussed that this diagnosis is largely based on the case history. But what role, you know, does our vestibular testing um, play in this? And in Meniere's disease, there are some general patterns that are observed uh, but these can often vary as well. Um, there isn't necessarily one specific test that um, can make the, a definitive diagnosis of Meniere's disease. We'll talk a little bit about some of the patterns um, observed, but why is this so variable? Well, we're often not seeing these patients during an episode, um, and a lot of it Probably largely depends on when we see them. Do you, do you agree with that, Liz?
1: Oh, yeah. And I'm not seeing them when it's active. I'll tell you that much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nobody wants to go through. So they don't want to see me either. No. Um, so, yeah, likely due to just the episodic nature of the disease. But, um, you know, we'll talk about now a little bit of the patterns observed. Um, sure. Primarily, I would say uh, two specific patterns have been mentioned in the literature over the last five to ten years one having to do with VEMS, and um, one having to do with the relationship between video head impulse testing and caloric testing so let's talk a little bit about um, the frequency tuning of them so um with regard to VEMP testing there's probably within the last three to five years this one is probably one of the newer patterns that have been described but some research studies have looked at the relationship between VEMP or in VEMP amplitude between frequencies. So they've looked at c vamp, am- and o amplitude at different frequencies, you know, 250, 5, 1000, 2000. And what they have shown, what some studies have shown is that the um, interfrequency amplitude ratio, and I'm gonna des- um, describe this as pretty much the amplitude difference at one frequency compared to the other. And so this ratio and amplitude at different frequencies is, can often look different in patients with Meniere's disease, um, as opposed to the more of the general population. So I'm gonna give you an example here. So um, one particular study found that the inter-frequency amplitude ratio um, between 500 and 1000 is very, very, very similar um, in patients with Meniere's disease. So we often see this higher, uh, this frequency tuning shift to higher frequencies um, in C-VEMP and O-VEMP testing. Um, now, this particular pattern has kind of it's still more or less on the forefront. It hasn't necessarily been solidified yet, but there are some studies that have uh, documented this this finding.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's definitely something that hasn't made it to the clinic yet, but something to be aware of. I know it is much more time intensive to do multiple frequencies. We've talked about other frequencies being beneficial in diagnosing other vestibular disorders. So it may be something where you may do that in the next couple of years to help with Meniere's disease. Let's talk about VHIT and Calorix, because I know those are very commonly done tests.
0: Yeah, so there have been several papers that have discussed this disassociation between uh, video head impulse testing and caloric testing in Meniere's disease. What they have more traditionally or more typically have found in these patients is that oftentimes you will see a patient diagnosed with Meniere's disease or suspected to have Meniere's disease. And they will have abnormal caloric results, caloric findings. They will present with a unilateral peripheral, or, you know, vestibular hypofunction, and have completely normal video head impulse testing finding findings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of theories as to why this might be the case. Uh, one was put forth by McCaslin in around 2014, which suggested that um, type 2 hair cells, which are more sensitive to low-frequency stimulation within the area of where caloric testing is, is probably aiming at, um, are more susceptible than type 1 hair cells, which are more uh, fast-acting and respond to higher frequencies of rotation. So this difference between um, you know which hair cells are more susceptible is, was primarily uh, the theory behind um, that disassociation. There was also There's also a, another theory by Manzar, Manzari and colleagues. This is probably the theory that's more accepted um, in the literature, but it suggests that um, due to basically just an, an enlarged labyrinth that endolymphi- uh, endolymphatic hydrops can result in, just lowers the efficacy of the caloric test. And mm-hmm. so it just affects that temperature transfer of, you know, that air or water stimulus, and it affects the caloric uh, test in and of itself. And so I would say that's probably the most accepted theory um, as as of right now.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think we've talked about this before, but this is exactly why calorics can't replace VHIT and yep, VHIT can't exactly. replace calorics. So we're looking at two different things and we're seeing different patterns based on different diagnoses. Exactly.
0: Um, one thing I did wanna mention. Um, regarding that frequency tuning of Vamps, is I have mentioned that you can see a higher shift in uh, frequency tuning tuning in these patients. But you also want to be aware that there is a shift to higher frequencies in also older adults. So you want to make sure that you want <laughs> you want to make sure that age is not. Um, the reason why you're seeing this shift to higher frequencies um, that may you just interpretation interpret those findings with caution
1: so maybe hold tight before you start doing all these frequency (laughs) tuning vemps because we may not have all the data we need to really diagnose a patient Um, As we've talked about before on the audiometric measures, you should find a low pitch or low frequency sensory neural hearing loss, meaning no differences between that bone and air conduction uh, test results. Typically, this does happen in one ear, but be warned that um, it can occur in both ears in up to 40% of patients. And there's also one other vestibular test (laughs) that has been used that we almost forgot about because neither Daniel nor I use it clinically. And I think you know the literature has really turned away from using this consistently, but that's ECOG. Yep. Talk to and, us a little bit about oh, that.
0: God. And every ENT will request talk to it. you about yes, we will request and talk to you about ECOG. Um, but with ECOG, it, the literature is is varies quite a bit mm-hmm. as to whether or not this is a test that can identify, um, you know, definite Meniere's disease. The Test in and of itself has um, pretty low sensitivity, and so mm-hmm. I think over the last, you know, several years we've kind of tried to step away from this. Uh, <laughs> Some
1: of us have run away. No, I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've tried to step away from this test because um, you know we're we're starting to maybe put a little bit more focus on our more objective, more reliable uh, test measures. Uh,
1: yeah. And this is, you know, I kind of view this sometimes like the Facuta step test, like if it fits things are great. If it doesn't fit, people right. don't pay attention to that. And that's what shows a very low sensitivity of a test that you probably shouldn't be using clinically when it, you only use it when it fits with what you're thinking. But, um, you know, it is it is something to keep aware of because, yeah, ENTs, neurotologists may ask for this test or ask you to do this. And there's definitely a lot of literature, especially more recently, to support maybe why you might want to use other measures.
0: It's a good point. So that basically wraps up a lot of the, you know, foundational, you know, information of where the literature is currently regarding Meniere's disease, the diagnosis, the uh, test findings that have been reported in the literature. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that we also very much know is that a lot of these, these uh, patients can vary. And again, dip- there's a lot of different variables that come into play of, you know, what, their results may look like when they come into your clinic. And so we would love to kind of highlight a few, uh, patients. If you have any interesting case studies or any interesting, um, patients that you've seen in the clinic, reach out to us on our Instagram. We would love to feature them. We would love to talk with you about them. So yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah.
1: And I think, you know, this is where we've really seen, there's so much research in Meniere's disease. Like if you just Google it, watch out. Um, But I think where we've been able to really establish good patterns for diagnostic criteria is because clinics have like started to report on these patterns. So I think this is a really cool way for us to share the information of the patients that you see. Definitely. We did get a lot of questions. Yeah, a lot um, of
0: great questions too.
1: On Instagram about Meniere's disease. Not surprising because this is just a really hard disease to diagnose. Um, so we're going to run through some of those. The first one is why do we have patients diagnosed with Meniere's disease if they do not yeah. fit the criteria?
0: Right. There's a lot of the time this, this, let's, we got to go. We did talk about findings. <laughs> we did talk about test patterns, but again, that's a little bit more newly described in the literature but this this disease is for years have been you know has been dependent on the case history it is very symptom based um and often these you know when there's really not a better diagnosis to lean towards Mm uh most often you know providers will make that diagnosis of meniere's disease if they do um, you know fit some aspects of that of that diagnostic criteria
1: I've also, I mean, I don't know if anyone's heard this term, maybe this is like the street term for it, but it's definitely like a trash can (laughs) diagnosis that a lot of providers use. Um, I've even had patients come in and they're like, oh yeah, I've had Meniere's disease for 20 years. And I'm like, who diagnosed you with that primary care? Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of cases where they've never gone through our testing, never seen an ENT self-diagnosed or whatever, um, just because it's one of the most commonly talked about disorders. So I think many times they're misdiagnosed, overdiagnosed because one, they haven't been through our vestibular testing or seen a disease specialist, ENT, neurotologist, um, or two, they've like, just haven't. I don't know, like Googled themselves. I don't know why it happens.
0: So the next question, um, is this something easily misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed?
1: Both, all of the above. (laughs) Yeah, definitely misdiagnosed, um, overdiagnosed. And that's why, you know, when patients come in, I ask a lot of questions about why they were diagnosed, when, what testing, who did, who gave the diagnosis. Because unfortunately, a lot of times by the end of the appointment, I have to start talking about the diagnostic criteria, not because they fit it, because they don't fit it. I'm like, you don't have a low-frequency sensory neural hearing loss. You've never had true vertigo lasting 12 hours, you know, all these different things. So a lot of times I use the diagnostic criteria to help convince them, this may not be appropriate diagnosis, and we need to find out what's more appropriate for you. Yeah. So this is a really... Really good question. What is the average length from diagnosis until burnout? And by burnout, what does that mean? First of all, run us through that, Daniel.
0: Yeah. So burnout is basically Meniere's disease. We know is a progressive disease, and so you're going to have eventual, you know, profound sensorineural hearing loss. You're going to have complete, you know, vestibular hypofunction in that ear. And so, when do you reach that point from diagnosis to complete loss and um you know i wish we had a straight (laughs) crystal clear can go to it whenever you needed to um answer for you but a lot of it is very unpredictable um you know some of the the treatment options that we discussed may help kind of slow it down it may try to help you know regulate and mediate um the episodes that you're having but as far as an average length i would say it's 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 kind of uh up in the air at this point okay I
1: was like is he gonna say a number of years (laughs) I I tried to find an answer for this and I totally agree we should have just named this episode like variable unpredictable like and just figured (laughs) you guys could have figured out what we were talking about but um i do think that based on interventions and how well the patient follows lifestyle modifications and even just their genetic composition and like i said there's so many theories about why this happens so the same type of treatment does not work for two you know two people with the same disorder um and so i think that's what makes it difficult in tracking how people progress with this and even like we don't necessarily fully understand why some people are more susceptible to bilateral Meniere's disease versus unilateral. And so um, I think the average length is definitely hard to say. And I can't even say anecdotally because my patient population of Meniere's disease has been so variable as well.
0: Um, so what can, aud- next question, what can uh, we as audiologists do to educate different professionals about this disease uh, versus other disorders?
1: Yeah, this is hard. I mean, I think in general, our greatest strength as vestibular audiologists is our testing, our objective testing, because we utilize that to figure out if it is another vestibular disorder that should be considered or if it is Meniere's disease, especially what's cool now with the updated uh, diagnostic criteria that you can also use, is that it includes audiometric measures. So that includes hopefully an audiologist in the (laughs) process for the diagnosis of Meniere's disease. So if your patient says, I have this diagnosis and they've never seen an audiologist, They technically don't meet the criteria if they haven't had a hearing test yet. So um, I think the best thing we can do is use our testing and use, you know, any possible patterns we find or patterns we don't find and, um, you know, match that up against the criteria for the patient. Last question. Mm -hmm. Should people with active Meniere's disease receive vestibular rehab therapy?
0: Yes. And so you touched on this a little bit uh, earlier in the episode, but, um, you know, as long, you know definitely during, you know, kind of being a little bit, you had mentioned being a little bit proactive with your patients, um, getting them in that therapy, you know, getting them used to that that process, and definitely during those stable periods of the disease, um, and absolutely uh, post any type of gentamicin treatment if that was actually used. Um, but one thing to also be aware of is that these, as long as this, you um, as long as they're, they're still having active episodes, as long as there's fluctuation and, you know, if the if the disease is not stable in any, in any way, they're not going to, you know, that compensation process is not going to be necessarily stable either. Um, so just one thing to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, and I think Daniel and I were talking offline, you know, in more detail about this. But in general, there's a number of things. And when we talked to Dr. Ashley Reed, who was the physical therapist we had on about VRT, we mentioned this, but you know, any fluctuation central or not is going to be really hard to compensate because they want to, you know, physical therapists want to work with a stable system. So even unmanaged um, managed migraine even unmanaged anxiety or other central psychological issues that are going on these are all things that are not going to be successful in a vrt situation and we know that like when we talk about 3pd or migraine and we try to send people to vrt who are not in a stable condition i think it's really tough but given that you know this is a dynamic condition but it's going to come back again and again and we know what it's doing to the inner ear i definitely think educating patients on what they can do um, in those periods following an attack is really, really helpful. So I definitely think there's two sides to this coin. And it, it's really whoever you're working with, what they're most comfortable treating and where they've seen the most success with the patient.
0: Yeah. Um, couldn't agree more. <laughs> so <laughs> that was really good. Those were excellent questions yes. that we had this month. Um, really kind of made challenged us, us. Th- yeah, yeah. Challenged <laughs> us, made us really think about them. But uh, yeah, that's Kind of it for this episode on meniere's disease liz do you have anything to add
1: if you have any other questions feel free to ask us i mean i think this is some a disease that's been around a long time and we're all still trying to figure it out obviously i mean we don't have a lot of complete answers to even patterns you should expect in testing so if you have any additional questions we'll use this community for the the greater good and and try to help educate y'all and obviously we'll be back um, next month with another episode and thanks for sticking with us.
0: All right. Take care.